0: For listeners of Film Jive, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check out their service. To do so, you can simply go to audibletrial.com/filmjive. That's audibletrial.com/filmjive to claim your free audiobook download today. Everyone, welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. I am your host, Zach Batanti, and joining me is co-host, Gary Sargentson. We are recording on February 2nd, 2016. This is episode number 93, where we are discussing D.W. Griffith's 1920 silent melodrama, Way Down East, starring Lillian Gish. Near the end of his life, in the late 1940s, D.W. Griffith said of contemporary cinema, What the modern movie lacks is beauty, the beauty of moving winds in the trees, the little movement in a beautiful blowing on the tree's blossoms. Griffith's words seemed to mourn the loss of pastoral poetry in the cinema, while also revealing an artist who never transitioned out of the previous cinematic regime, eclipsed by time and further innovation. For Griffith, his cinema was always an extension of photography, sharing an admiration for the world around us, capturing the wonder of incidental movement in the background and subtle gestures of his most famous leading lady his most famous leading lady, Lillian Gish. Griffiths' nineteen twenty melodrama, Way Down East, is arguably his stock company's most successful attempt in using film as an instrument to convey the poetic texture of nature, depicting a setting that ceases to function solely as mere background. Much has been written regarding Griffith's impressionistic depiction of the natural landscape as visual means to express the psychology of his archetypes, but I'm curious, Gary, as to whether you feel Griffith's cinematic landscapes express the temporal or the secular.
1: Well, it's quite a relevant quote for this film. Quite a relevant question, rather. Um, yeah. Well, I think Griffith sometimes is quite a a messy filmmaker in the way, like he is capable of incredible mise en scène, as um, this film shows. And when he get when he gets when Griffith is great, I think he is one of the the all-time masters. I think there's certain scenes in this film definitely which push towards a temporal quality in the same way that maybe like someone like Carol Dreyer can create particularly the stuff with Lillian Gish. The way he frames Gish particularly is quite magical. Um, what interesting is with this film you combined the kind of realism of things like the, the ice flow scene to kind of balance out the kind of overblown melodrama, which I think is one of the strengths of the film, and that's one of the things that the, there's a quote from the film theorist Podovkin. He was talking about that balance, the harmony um, of the storm and the human heart, and the storm and the frenzy of nature.
0: In response to that particular quote, I do think though that there is a a sense, especially when you hear Podovkin talk about it and both Eisenstein that. David's last-minute rescue of Anna's body uh, okay. is a betrayal of everything that Griffith has established in that sequence the the realism of that sequence is then to some degree undermined by the melodrama of its outcome
1: i guess you could argue yeah you could argue that i, I mean if it's not a realistic film at all but then it, that's a the genre i don't know if griffith has any responsibility to make he's not. He's not trying to be a realist anyway. So, but I think the film is notable for that realism. that's sort of groundbreaking in a way, and that's kind of strength of the film. I don't. I wouldn't. I, that's
0: not a problem for me. So, do you? If you say that he's not, or if you don't feel that Griffith is a realist, so then do you? Now, I, I'm only bringing him up because I know you quite like Carl Dreyer, mm. and you wouldn't consider Dreyer a realist, correct? Well, it depends what you are meaning by realism. O'Dwyer has a
1: his films are visually so austere that that's a kind of realistic style. But in terms of the stories, they're not really realistic.
0: I mean, I I, I definitely feel that he works in the realm of of American melodrama, mm. and that nearly all of his body of work exists in that in that framework. I also think he is greatly limited by working within that framework, and I do think he does things to try to push American melodrama in cinema in a different direction. But I, I would still say that he is more of a realist of this period than his contemporaries in Europe and what they're doing with silent cinema. Sure, yeah, well, Griffiths working in that the Hollywood style, that kind of realism. I feel more often than not his films are more secular driven. I do think he's not a great director in his delineation of filmic space, you know, in the sense that his films never graduated from being these lateral two dimensional frames and the way that he stages that. But I do think with Way Down East, there are instances where. Sort of the surface texture of the landscape, and and particularly how that landscape changes over the course of a scene, does reflect, you know, these inner tensions of the characters. So I do think in this particular case he's maybe operating on a more tem- temporal level. Uh, I still think his imagery is very much steeped in sentimentalism, mm. particularly how he depicts the prairie as sort of this. This utopia, and to some degree a spiritual utopia, that's where I think he ultimately. And many people have said this, and I agree with it, that he is a nineteenth-century artist working in the twentieth century. Mm. But there is sort of a yearning that's expressed throughout the film, not just by the characters, but by the nature as well, and then more so in the climax. How nature it reflects these inner conflicts of these characters, but it also is, seems to me, to simultaneously be reflecting nature's indifference to what is happening to them but i do feel this griffith is such a his legacy is is such so inflated and it's very difficult to talk about his films sort of isolated from one another and isolated from himself Mm. and then also the sort of all the the history that has been applied to Griffith as a filmmaker I think is sort of a more a manufacturing of American myth but I do feel culturally this idea of him as a poet is somewhat exaggerated in the sense that his films are completely absent of those sort of those empty moments that just allow the natural world and those images to develop their own life and become something outside the story he is still very his films are very plot driven and they're his editing is is a very mechanized propulsive series and and it runs functions like a locomotion but i think how he uses nature in this film as sort of an inevitable inevitable force is successful in tandem with the narrative beats in terms of this being a melodrama and how these characters, what happens to these characters and at what point in the story they happen and then how nature responds to those things. Do you think that
1: Griffith has been remembered as an image-based director? For me, I just thought what Griffith's great as is that storytelling, the editing. But with this film, he seems to develop mise-en-scene more. Uh, It struck me while rewatching this that uh, I hadn't quite remembered Griffith as being so strong in that. Do people consider him the kind of visual
0: artist? For me, it's very murky what he is considered and what he isn't considered. Mm. I am extremely suspicious of an attempt by popular culture to frame him as the father of film because it's operating solely on an assumption. Right. Earlier versions of film
1: history did regard Griffith as the pioneer creating everything. I think that was a myth perpetuated by Griffith himself as well, but I think I don't, I think the consensus now is, no, yeah, he didn't invent everything, but what's great about him as a director is, like, he was the, the guy who was one of the best at putting everything together and creating the kind of feature film uh, with all those components executed very well.
0: Right, particularly the epic. Yeah. It seems to me that, you know, unfortunately nearly 80% of silent and early cinema is lost, particularly American cinema. Therefore, our ability to access the origins of cinematic techniques is limited. But I think think it's quite evident that much of what D.W. Griffith was doing with the Hollywood film was already well underway in Europe previous to films like The Birth of a Nation and Intolerance. I think what those films accomplished are the progenitor of what now is considered the modern Hollywood blockbuster. And arguably, I think, maybe the beginning of propaganda cinema. You know, there, I I feel like there is an argument that without The Birth of a Nation, we wouldn't have a film like Battleship Potemkin or Triumph of the Will. And,
1: mm. Yeah, so you're saying before Birth of a Nation, the feature film was established. Do you mean like sort of the Italian epics?
0: Right, well, you have, what what is it? Uh,
1: Cabiria. Cabiria, yeah. right,
0: which influenced... In, influenced Um, Uh, but i I I guess the modern hollywood blockbuster now become it being a product you know this idea that we can make a movie and sell it yeah and it will make millions and millions of dollars i don't know what cabiria financially was in italy no. but i do think his sort of framing as the father of film really has little to do with his own aesthetic achievements and more to do with preserving a natural history for cinema i think his place in cinema was j- exaggerated at the start because of his social and political ideologies and i think film culture sustained placing him on a pedestal but then has tried to separate the form from the content and that's why every conversation or writing about griffith begins with this prelude regarding the subject of racism mm. which i think is worth questioning you know why why in this case are we te- attempting to separate Form from content. You know, if the medium is the message, Mm -hmm. my question is always is what if him being, what if Griffith's objectionable ethics are inherent to how his films are aesthetically structured? You know, why does, I don't know why does film culture seem so determined to keep him within a pantheon? Yeah, I think to a
1: certain extent you have to separate the art from the artist. Obviously, the problem here with Griffith is like Birth Birth of a Nation where the racism is so ingrained into the the structure of the film and the message of the film. Films that I would pick out as his best work is sort of less relevant. Um so you're always gonna you're never gonna know a filmmaker may have objectionable political beliefs or whatever, but um I think you just have to look at the art itself.
0: Regardless of him, I still think there's an attempt to go, yes, it's a racist film but it has these aesthetic things about it. And my argument is sort of separate from Griffith. What if the, ra- the racism in the film is inherent to aesthetically what is happening within the film? If Without yeah. that racism, the aesthetics would not be present. I have this other feeling that Birth of a Nation aesthetically is a very clumsy movie. And that it's quite evident that whether it was Edwin Porter or... French serials like Les Vampires. There were other filmmakers at this point that were creating films with just as much visual sophistication. But yet we we insist on placing The Birth of a Nation at the top. And I, and I believe it's because people will feel that the preservation of film history w- will be lost without creating an origin point. Which mm-hmm. I'm saying was done with D.W. Griffith at the turn of the 20th century because his films did reflect an ideology. Okay. But I, I also think maybe his place is because, whether we want to admit it or not, that cinema's aesthetic significance is measured by popularity. Um, and that doesn't really happen in other forms of visual art. You know, it, it does happen in music, and it's a problem that seems to kind of be existing, starting to exist in the art world. But if you look at the legacy of a painter, their work doesn't become significant until long after they are dead. Whereas his legacy which I agree with you, I do think was greatly manufactured by himself, was defined while he was producing films. But there seems to be this emphasis that, well, yes, The Birth of a Nation is a problematic film, but then he tried to eradicate it with Intolerance and Broken Blossoms as being anti-racist films, uh, which Griffith's making of Intolerance wasn't a response Yeah to apologize, but rather a response to denounce the censorship that he was experiencing with Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's kind of absurd to read those two films as evident apologies when I also feel those films clearly repress any understanding of racism within their narratives. His films aren't framed within an understanding of racial oppression. Broken Blossoms isn't about an interracial relationship. Because the Chinese character, being Chinese, is purely atmospheric. And Griffith still influences that archetype with all sort of the these traits that really just are stock traits that every Griffith hero had throughout his body of work. So I question his place and question whether or not filmmakers that were doing work that was just as interesting, and then questioning why why we're still talking about him in such a highfalutin way.
1: What did you think of the film overall?
0: (laughs) Had you seen it before? No, I had not, no. His films are just, they're sort of rife with these odd contradictions. Um, One of the strangest things in this film, in my mind, was these comedic beats and that I see that the comedy is meant to finesse this narrative, this dour narrative, which I appreciate. But those sequences for me didn't feel very germane because those characters involved are sort of separate and absent of agency within Anna's narrative. Um, So they sort of feel like these interruptive interludes.
1: Yeah, the comedy is the worst thing in the film, I think. He's not particularly strong as a comedic director, I don't think. I'd rather just have that... They could have got rid of all that stuff. Like, those characters, you don't really need them. You, to a certain extent, you do. But it feels like unnecessary to give them so much screen time. Mm-hmm. There's a weird, like, that. the Professor's character. is like a kind of mixture between, like, Lloyd, Harold Lloyd, and Chaplin. Pretty, pretty cringeworthy to watch.
0: Do you think it's an obligation, though, to establish... Um, I can't think of the character's name, but the woman who eventually outs... Oh, yeah. Know, you...
1: Well, maybe...
0: I mean, I think it presents a complication in how he depicts those characters uh, because there's very much throughout the film, within the first 10 minutes, of establishing the class divide and the way he depicts the upper class versus the lower class. But when he gets into those comedic interludes, all those characters all are members of the countryside, and they're depicted very much within this sort of country bumpkin stereotype. And I think his framing of their sort of idiocy foils his attempt to sort of establish this contrast between the urban values and the rural values. Yeah. And then the rural values are constantly sort of contradicting themselves. When he introduces Farmer Bartlett, I think there's a title card that says something about a worldly man taught by the finest poets. Uh, But there's no, that character doesn't, embody that type of individual
1: yeah there's a title card as well at the start i think it says something like it's in man's nature to be polygamous
0: his sort of psa is public service announcement that he begins the movie
1: yeah that delineation between possibly the decadence of the city versus the kind of purity of the country he's kind of undermining that there because if it's like natural for a man to to cheat on a woman or whatever then why say that? Why establish that? But they, they mentioning the title cards there—that's the thing that I hate most about a Griffith film. They're so utterly pompous. He's the need to kind of hit you over the head with his, with his morality, but then if you watch his film, he's also capable of great subtlety. I can its like you wouldn't think that was the same director could do. He can create like scenes that are incredibly tender, uh, portraying Gish. But then it feels the need to like put these kinda terrible of uh, messages at the start through it, but
0: Well, they're very they're very suggestive in their telling of the story. And they are embedded with a commentary that I think directly judges the characters as we're observing them. And then it often undermines the the preceding action. You know, the one moment that in the film that really struck me was uh Sanderson's seduction of Anna you know, in that series of sequences, there is sort of a preceding series of title cards. And those moments for me were absent of any dramatic tension. Because we're not only aware that Sanderson is taking advantage of her through the text. You know, now there are these, there are also these several inserts of Sanderson contemplating his actions beforehand. Yeah. But I feel like the malice of that scene would be far more grossing if, Griffith could restrain himself from judging that character before he does what he does. sure. But he uses the title card to very much sort of define his characters in contrast to one another, which then makes it difficult to see how he then does depict them visually. It seems like the, the pretense of the title card is written after he's made the film. He's inserting these title cards as a way to sort of retroactively alter this person's characterization rather than how he depicted them when he was shooting the film.
1: Maybe, yeah. Uh, it's hard to know, though, how the film played at that time. If, like, it was necessary. It, it couldn't be as subtle. But a few years later, when you had, like, Murnau and stuff, they kind of really pushed it on. And like, I think Murnau was, like, the first guy to get rid of title cards altogether.
0: You talked about the fragile sequences, these intimate sequels, sequences with Lily and Gish yeah how much do you think that is Lillian Gish herself conveying that rather than what Griffith is doing in the filmmaking
1: I'd possibly lean towards Gish but because mm-hmm. Gish is like one of my favorite actors I think she's incredible um but I think because Gish had came through Griffith's stock company anyway like that style was kind of created I think well this might be a myth again but kind of created it between them um, the kind of movement towards more subtlety. Mm-hmm. There's a the kind of quote. I think yeah, Griffith's advice to Gish was think of an emotion and don't try too hard to demonstrate it physically. But I think the, there's a baptism scene which is quite incredible. But Griffith does something quite interesting visually, where he, he breaks it into a, a kind of chiar, chiaroscuro style, like a kind of quite Caravaggio kind of portrait or something. where he, the the the, the background is completely black and it's just Gish's face. Which is quite quite striking.
0: Well, when he isolates her and really tries to visually emphasize this character's dislocation, mm. it does feel almost like a a different filmmaker. Okay, yeah. I only asked the question because it's it's hard for me to tell what is his direction and what is Lillian Gish just being who she is, because mm. she really is the only performer that overcomes the theatricality all the other performers still very much over accentuate their body language and you know and over enunciate the dialogue mm. and and it's actually an effective technique in the scenes where gish is juxtaposed against say her wealthy cousins where they're all sitting in the parlor yeah. cousins look at her and there is this brief moment where they s- attempt to sit up that much taller to keep their eyeline in a position of looking down at her It's effective because there is this contrast between these two classes of people, whereas in other Griffith films I've seen, when actors are doing the same thing but they are of the same environment that Gish's character is, that contrast in performing style sort of reveals this artifice and then for me kind of thrusts the viewer outside the reality of the story. Yeah, I
1: don't know. That may just be sort of greatness of Gish being ahead of her time rather than like the kind of Jefferson H. and Actos.
0: One thing that was interesting to me near the beginning of the film as well, talking about his mise en scène being more sophisticated, there were moments. Maybe I'm trying to I'm forcing this a little bit that felt the in the opening felt very reminiscent of The Wizard of Oz, with Anna leaving her rural beginnings. She's even chased by this little dog, uh, but then she arrives in Boston at this monolithic space. And there's these, these multiple doorways that she has to enter, and each one is guarded by an okay. individual. And you see her dwarfed by space. And it, it was interesting how he depicted the rural world versus the wealthy, because really that's the only time that we we actually see any kind of exterior representation of the upper class. The gates to the house visually express this this separation it's as if she's literally entering another realm it's not just boston but it's a world within boston of these wealthy people who live sort of in this this enclosed fortress and it is interesting that he never does he never portrays when anna is in this world and she's going out with sanderson he never portrays them walking the city streets or engaged in any outdoor life Everything is within these enclosed structures or within a in a parlor uh, where she is sort of constantly dwarfed and in contrast with her environment just by how he, I guess, essentially stages the film at the beginning.
1: It's interesting. Well, melodrama is normally a genre which is quite obsessed with class. But this is an interesting one. I couldn't think of another melodrama that I'm sure there is like, from this period. that that, that kind of explored working class rather than a middle class society. And Sucks is often about the kind of hypocrisy, a sort of bourgeois values. I guess this is, in a way, as well, through the character of Sanderson.
0: You mentioned this idea of the spiritual versus the natural, and one of the ways that I saw that being expressed was the juxtaposition of Sanderson to David. Sanderson sort of being like all the faults of natural man, Mm. and David being sort of the spiritual, almost Christ-like figure. And this is very true in a film like Broken Blossoms, but it seemed evident here that the idea of a woman, a virginal woman, and that ultimately both Sanderson and David are after the virginal woman. Mm. And it's when David realizes that Anna is not a virginal woman, that there's initially an, a rejection.
1: Does he reject her when he finds out?
0: There is an... Initially, he, he attacks his father. Yeah. Tell him it's not true, and then when she says, I can't lie, it mm. is true, he does sort of... He doesn't outright condemn her, but he so his role in the altercation becomes very passive. He's not sure what to make of this. She then nominates Sam, Sanderson and... and you know, reveals what he's done to her. But then there, there has to sort of be an action to that. And it seems like this the experience of the storm absolves her of, of the guilt. And then David's rescue, which, talking about melodrama, very much in the nick of time, which is a very traditionally melodramatic ending of melodrama, in my mind, kind of restored this idea of, of the patriarchy. The system that ruined her life has now preserved her and saved her. A good man condemned a good woman, and now a good man is rescuing a good woman. And, and it does feel that there, I read in a piece that compared this film and the stage play to Tessa of the Dubervilles, and how clear that this film is more in the vein of Amer- American melodrama, whereas Tessa of the Dubervilles, you know, the end of that story is the woman committing suicide which is, I think, where maybe the Russian filmmakers feeling frustrated by the, the conclusion of the film because it feels very much like Griffith can't escape the Victorian literature that so much influenced his filmmaking, which I don't know is if that is necessarily a fault. I think that that becomes an aesthetic preference mm. in how one tells their story.
1: But then the, the style that Griffith is working in He's trying to to make a, a blockbuster film. So in some ways you have to kind of provide the audience with the values that they already hold. So you could argue that wouldn't play, you know, the kind of critical outlook. Even though I think that the morality of the film is Griffith's morality. You know, if, if you look at like Hollywood film, there's a sort of cycle of reproducing existing values which then... Kind of feedback and people kind of take influence from. So it's not necessarily if a, a certain things portrayed in a film that it's the filmmaker's point of view. Um, it could just be a t- attempt to be a commercial film.
0: Right, and I mean the very the ending of the film is very much in vain of sort of it is wish fulfillment. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about that sequence structurally? How he cuts that sequence together? Because you know it is regarded as one of the great set pieces
1: I think it plays really well I think it's great there is a few sections where uh, sort of trick shots like wooden wooden ice uh, icebergs and stuff which is a wee bit ropey Griffith's editing in general is great I was surprised going back to some of the films recently that how the the pacing of them is feels quite modern rather Mm -hmm. than um, you would think it could potentially quite a slog but um i don't know if his was his editing pattern kind of quicker
0: that seems to be that uh and that his films very much prescribed had sort of a prescription i mean there's a famous quote that he said that the pace must be quickened from beginning to end this is not however a steady ascent the action must quicken to a height in a minor climax and build again to the next climax which should be faster than the first retard again and build again to the third Right. Right. And there are, I don't know if you're familiar with the study of cinematics, researching film shot lengths and time duration and the median shot lengths and how films are actually sort of how they pace themselves out. And actually, you can see that his films very much adhered to, he was seeking for a pattern okay. uh, editorially and that these films actually all do structurally are fairly similar. At least the, the feature films from you know 1914 to 28 or whatever.
1: Some of, like, Chaplin's stuff from a similar period is quite a strain to watch because, like, Chaplin would just hold one shot. I know it's sort of for Chaplin it's part of, like, trying to get the, the kind of trick or whatever the kind of gag is doing, but um, they're quite a bit of a slog, even like a 20-minute like a film. Come back to the, the scene. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a, a classic scene. Um, the fact that the, the realism, again, um, sells it. You know, apparently it was really rough. It took a long time to film and stuff like that. And then like, Lillian Gish had to, like, she offered to put her hand in the water. And the guy, Richard Baphim, is jumping about as icebergs actually happened. Um, so I think um, it's a it's quite a powerful, powerful scene.
0: It isn't. I did wonder, though, I wanted to ask, because this is the first time I would seen the film. Uh, but it was interesting that the cutting is fast and the actions that the characters take feel fast, but the duration of that event felt like it was very much slowed down for me. Like that it was a it was a long sequence. Right, okay. Uh but really I, I'm not sure. It only is ten or twelve minutes mm. of the runtime. Mm-hmm. The structure of the film very much kind of reminded me like a piece of music in the sense that you have sort of this that the ending of the piece is sort of a, ret- a f- going full circle and coming back around to the beginning, and that this, this storm is sort of the, the rise, the rise, the rise, that then once we climax, we will fall back to the sort of the rural prairie beginnings that the film began at. Mm. Um, and restore. And she, her, her innocence is restored by overcoming this, this storm that she's been in.
1: What did you think of the, the cinematography in the ice floor scene? You know more about that stuff than me. It looked quite dark, um, and I wasn't sure if that if that was on purpose. Like, I don't know if they're actually shooting at night or not.
0: I think I think some of it is. Yeah, I did read a little bit about Bitzler Bitzer talking Bitzer, yeah. about the experience of shooting the film and that right. there was a lot of difficulty finding proper exposure because they are and and I do think you can clearly see that there is there's a time of day change that right. at some point they are shooting in daylight I think when they're moving along the river but when the initial when she initially rushes out into the storm and is chased by David it appeared to me that all that footage was shot at night I also read along with the Lillian Gish keeping her hand in the water, that mm. there was a constant concern that the camera was going to freeze. Yeah, yeah. And so they would have to build large fires in front of the camera to right. try and <laughs> keep it warm. And, like, film stock was a lot less
1: sen- sensitive at that time, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah, so... There's no camera movement in this one where there was, but like, Birth of a Nation mm-hmm. and, intolerance. and Intolerance. Yeah. In
0: particularly. Is there a particular place in the film where you would have liked to have seen camera movement?
1: Well, maybe it would have worked in that the ice 4 sequence to add a bad dynamism. It just wasn't practical.
0: I did want to ask in regards to the the baptism sequence whether you felt that that the death of the child haunts the rest of the film. Not for me, really. Right. Yeah, I agree. Mm. It feels like an event, and it's a tra- tragic event, and yeah. it's the end of that act. I mean, it's a powerful sequence. It's it's one thing that's interesting uh, because th- that I would have liked from the the period that Anna is on the farm in the second act was moments where she is alone uh, because you don't really see that character ever in a state of grief until right before the ice flow sequence. Mm. I would like to see how that character is coping and it just it feels like something... I mean, this is where I, it gets into sort of a question of with Griffith, because he his films are, they're driven by women protagonists. This applied like well, there's some kind of proto-feminism going on in his films or whatever, which I don't, no. I'm not, I don't buy for a second. <laughs> but it, it does it does make me question sort of his his depiction of women and then how he they're utilized. Because I mean, he very much the women are always martyrs in his films, and they seem to always be they're all always representations of uh, an ideal of a woman rather than they're ultimately still there for the male spectator and that he's not really... Gish is not portraying a woman on a woman's terms as a woman with the concerns of a woman. It's very much still through this through the eyes of this man. And that, I guess, is where Gish does make up in her performance is that the ex- emotional experience that the audience shares with that character because we it's so limited she does make up for it in the performance that you feel this person's anguish but i guess i just wanted i was hoping that there would be sequences where gish is separate from being courted by another man and then the the other thing that struck me was the character of kate who david's parents are encouraging david to marry I wondered what you thought about that character as a contrast to Anna. I mean, it's a pretty thin character. She's interesting to me because I do feel like there's definite contrast between the depiction of Kate and then the depiction of Anna. And I think it might be unintentional, but Kate felt very much like a modern young woman. I even feel like that actress's performance style, like that character felt like she just got off the train, and right. the night before was, you know, wearing a flapper, right. dancing in a night hall, Yeah, and she comes off as modern to me in her appearance, in her body language, it's even interesting that the two men that are interested in her are the womanizer and the professor, but not the farmhand, the narrative treats her in contrast to Anna, they both appear, it seems that Kate has been from the same kind of rural beginnings that Kate That Anna has but Kate's character never seems as though she's been taken advantage of Um, now the unfortunately there are sequences missing from the film and there is a moment apparently where Sanderson makes a pass at her right but she rejects him but we don't see that it's just explained to us in intertitles Mm -hmm. but it seems as though she's very much in control of the encounters that she has with men which is very different from Lily and Gish yeah Mm. Do you have any thoughts on Griffith's legacy or anything like that?
1: I think he is an important figure as a guy who put it all together, but um, you make some good points that not a complete story in the sense that we, there's so many films lost. It's hard to, to get a accuracy uh, and say substantially, but for what we know, I think technically he is an important guy. Um, the racism thing you can't really mention Griffith without that, which taints his whole legacy as well. Um and sort of quite rarely so I think. But um I mean I, I'm quite a big fan of when he when he gets it right. He was a guy who maybe I don't know if this is true could say the first kind of yeah, well you you said it earlier the kind of breaking pioneering commercial cinema, uh, being the businessman having his own studio and sort of being the artist, trying to balance them. Um and I think that may be one of the reasons why he has quite an uneven filmography. especially all the biograph shorts, they were just getting churned out one a week or whatever it was. Um and some of them are aren't good at all. Uh, some of them are amazing. And then towards the late, the latter stage of his career, he seemed like a guy who was completely out of his time. His sound films well, I've only seen one Abraham Lincoln is not a good film. People seem to speak very highly of The Struggle. The Struggle, right, I've not seen that one. But I think the films with Lily and Gish are really strong. Uh, Way Down East, Orphans of the Storm, Broken Blossoms, uh, they're my three three favourites.
0: so that's our show for this week i hope you guys enjoyed our conversation on dw griffith's way down east i'd like to thank gary sargenson who can be heard on the cinema subculture podcast which can be found at cinemasubculture.blogspot.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on the film or respond with any feedback you may have please do so by sending an email to filmjive at gmail.com don't forget to check us out on facebook google plus stitcher radio and subscribing to our itunes feed where you can also leave a review which goes a long way in expanding our listenership. And please be sure to visit audibletrial.com filmjive to start your free audible.com trial today. Thanks for listening. Check back in two weeks for our next episode. And until then, remember to keep on jiving.